Welcome everybody, Summer Mixtape. Uh, I'm here with Jamar Tisby and uh, so excited to be with you, man. Thanks for being on and um, so excited to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to it, man. It's, it's uh, great to talk to you. I don't know if folks knew we were in a leadership cohort together. And so I had a, a blast just getting to know you and the other folks in our cohort over the past uh, year or so. So this is a special treat for me. Oh man, you're too kind. That, that was an awesome cohort. Um, it was with uh, Lisa Sharon Harper led it through Freedom Road. And uh, yeah, it was such a blast to be a part of. And I feel like I really learned and, and grew throughout that time, man. So yeah, it's great to be able to connect after that and do something like this. All right, if you don't know Jamar, you should. Um, but if you don't, Jamar is the best-selling author of The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism. He recently, very recently, joined the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University as the Assistant Director for Narrative and Advocacy. He is also the founder of The Witness Incorporated and co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. Um, Tisby speaks nationally about history, religion, and anti-racism, um, including seeing you on CNN and places like that all the time, jumping in when anything pops off to be able to give perspective and um, share your views on everything, which I find to be so helpful, man. So that's your bio, obviously. Um, but tell us a little bit about your story, kind of how you came to be where you are today. Sure. I'll, I'll sort of focus on my religious journey. Um, I grew up north of Chicago, so Midwest, born and raised, and um, we weren't especially a religious family. There was no hostility there. It just wasn't kind of a priority or part of our daily lives. Uh, fun fact, though, I did get baptized at the age of eight in a Southern Baptist Convention congregation. So I had no idea what that meant, but it's, uh, it's, it's been um, an interesting intersection with my story and, and that particular denomination. But my faith really didn't become my own, I'd say, till high school. And that was through uh, the ministry of a white evangelical youth group. And so for me, race and religion have always been intertwined in, in very personal ways. I mean, I'd go to the youth group on Wednesdays and, and have a blast playing basketball and the silly games that youth groups do, but looking around and like it, almost everybody's white, practically everyone was white. Um, so there was that dynamic. And then in college, I went to the University of Notre Dame, which is a Catholic school, but um, actually got exposed to something called Reformed Theology while I was there. And that was even more white than my white evangelical setting. So uh, that was an interesting journey. But things, again, started to shift for me after undergrad when I joined Teach for America. And they sent me down to the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, which is where I'm recording from right now. It's where I've lived my entire adult life, um, except for five years in Jackson, Mississippi, when I was getting my master's in divinity. So coming down to the Delta, and specifically the county where I'm in has been named the fourth poorest county in the entire United States. You drive downtown and you would think that a bomb went off, but you have to have better spectacles and better better lenses to see because it's actually a community that's quite rich in history connections culture and uh, it's part of what gripped me nevertheless i was face to face with all of these sort of justice issues that we talk about or write about or read about from food deserts to a lack of medical care to underfunded public education it's all walking into my classroom on two legs every day 
And so I started asking questions of my faith, like, what does my faith have to say that there are, it's the Bible Belt, there are churches on every corner. And yet, over 40% of the local population, 75% of whom are Black, live below the poverty line. And I found that my theological tradition just didn't have much to say, didn't Mm -hmm. have many resources, at least that I found. So um, taught for four years, I was a principal for another three years, and then went to seminary, like I said, in Jackson, Mississippi. And that was uh, an education far beyond what I signed up for. <laughs> it was uh, the, the school of hard knocks and um, getting a, an education at a very conservative Southern seminary and going to uh, a, a conservative Presbyterian church uh, exposed me to a lot of the rifts and the divisions that have already been there. But um, for one reason or another, I personally hadn't noticed or at least hadn't realized the depth of, and you couple that with current events. Some people have called this the Trayvon Martin generation. Uh, Back in 2012, Martin is murdered by a vigilante. He gets acquitted. That spurs um, the phrase Black Lives Matter, but that phrase doesn't catch on till August 2014 when Mike Brown is killed in this place most of us had never heard of called Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, from there, you just get this cascade of events from cell phone videos showing unarmed Black people getting brutalized and killed by police to massacres like the Emanuel Nine to uh, the the so-called Unite the Right rally, trying to preserve a Confederate monument in Charlottesville, Virginia. Layer that on top of the 2016 presidential election, which, mind you, started really all the way back in June 2015 when uh, the man who would become president came down the escalators of his own hotel and announced his candidacy uh, for president. And and we had a year of Republican primaries. So all of that's happening. And uh, in the midst of it, this organization I founded, The Witness, uh, well, we change our name to The Witness, uh, partially because of the racism we experienced, is just exposing me to it's 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 encapsulating not only my own journey with religion and race but it's also exposing me to yeah dozens of dozens of stories across the country so that's probably a longer version than you wanted but um along the way started my phd finishing up my dissertation in history at the university of mississippi and started this new job with the center for anti-racist research yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm, I'm assuming that all the events you're talking about, and obviously the ones that you didn't even get to mention because the list is too long, but um, you're processing those, uh, you know, in a, in a pro- predominantly white seminary, um, in a predominantly white church, and uh, those things are, I'm assuming, causing you to kind of question some of the theological underpinnings of like, whether it's your original decision um, for Christ, um, or getting kind of serious about it in high school, or getting exposed to reform theology in college and then beyond. And um, how, how difficult was that? I mean, I, I understand somewhat just by listening to you a lot and, and other friends who've walked through similar things about the kind of like mental aspect of trying to make sense of it, right? And how difficult it is to make sense of it. But I, I just love to hear a, a snippet of like, how was your heart during all of that? How were your, your emotions during all of that? How difficult was that? to process, not just mentally, but, you know, from a heart perspective. 
terribly difficult and I'm still dealing with it, processing it, healing from the spiritual trauma. Uh, one of my uh, therapist friends talks about betrayal and in particular how institutional betrayal can be some of the most painful. Uh, you can think of a soldier who's given everything for their country feeling betrayed by yeah. their nation or their government. Um, in the case of Christians, you think of uh, people feeling a sense of betrayal by the church. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what was hardest for me is I met some great people yeah. in all these spaces, whether seminaries or churches or, or other Christian spaces, people who I thought um, had my back mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. But then when the controversy came, specifically when people started attacking me as too liberal or Marxist, or the latest one is critical race theorists, whatever it might be, they were silent or they were extremely muted in their response. The analogy I, I often think of is uh, when King David wants to get rid of Uriah to cover up his, his sin, um, he sends Uriah to the thick of the battle, the heated part of, of the battle, and then uh, tells his general to, to order the soldiers to withdraw from Uriah and leave him alone. And you can just imagine Uriah in that moment. There he is with his comrades uh, fighting against the enemy, shoulder to shoulder and elbow to elbow, knowing that it's dangerous, it's, it's hard, but at least he's got people around him. And then all of a sudden he looks up and he's all alone. Where are the people I thought I could count on? Where are the people I thought I could trust? And that was the feeling mm. that I had literally for years in yeah. the midst of, of all of this. Yeah, um, I can't imagine. And um, yeah, I, I, I know I wasn't, you know, there for all of that. And we haven't gotten to know each other till later, but I just want to say, I'm sorry. That's awful. And um, man, I, uh, I really appreciate you peeling back the layers a little bit and sharing some of that, because I think that, I mean, you, you talk about this in, in both books, but the idea of um, coming together with collective lament and being moved by um, the pain that we've either been complicit in or afflicted ourselves or that we've experienced um, sharing that lament with each other. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Um, if you want more of that story too, if y'all are watching and want more of Jamar's story, he did, um, on past the mic, a, a leave loud, um, or maybe two. I think you did a, did you do a follow-up one as well? well uh, we've got a whole series. So right. my story uh, kicks it off. You'll hear from Tyler Burns, Ali Henney, and then we have sort of a recap episode as well. So plenty of, of content there. So go to the past the mic podcast. Jamar's is the first one um, under leave loud. And then yeah, Tyler was great too. I need to catch up on the other ones. Um, all right, man. Well, this was your first book here the New York Times bestseller. Um, and uh, I, I think I've told you, um, this was just hugely influential for me. Um, really one of the, the most important books I've read in, in a decade. Um, and I loved it so much, I actually bought a copy for all of our staff and, and leaders uh, this last at the end of uh, 2020, because it was, I told them the best book I read all year and I wanted them to, to get into it. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course, man. Um, so you wrote it. It's obviously called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Um, and it's all about this idea of, you know, the churches and Christians, individuals, complicity in racism. In the first chapter, you say 
The failure of many Christians in the South and across the nation to decisively oppose the racism in their families, communities, and even in their own church provide, provides fertile soil for the seeds of hatred to grow. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. History and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. There can be no confession without truth. And I really feel like you, I, I love that. I was telling uh, Kristen Dumay this when I did her uh, mixtape interview too, that y'all bring the receipts and y'all historians do. I just love that about um, all the stuff that y'all write. Um, and you've got the receipts in here, right? For the truth. And, and I think that if we believe scripture is true, that the truth is going to set us free um, this is an important place to start. And so for those that may not know or been exposed to um, the history of Christian complicity with racism, you and I have even had conversations in the cohort and other places about the lack of teaching around this stuff in, in American education, um, and especially in private Christian education a lot of times. So for those of us that didn't get this growing up and haven't been exposed to it, can you walk a little bit through what this Christian complicity with racism has looked like over the years? I think it should be part of our sort of annual traditions to to read the letter from a Birmingham jail mm -hmm. that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote. There's so much good stuff. Some people have called it, you know, one of the greatest works of political theology in the 20th century. And I would absolutely agree with that. Anyway, you remember the part in the letter where King says, you know, I've come to the regrettable conclusion that the greatest enemy of progress isn't the Ku Klux Klaner or the white citizens counselor, but the white moderate, yeah. the white moderate, yeah. you know, who prefers a negative peace over the presence of justice, that kind of a thing. And, and, and that idea of the white moderate is really part of the idea of Christian complicity with racism, yeah. right? If you think of racism on a spectrum, you have people on one end of the spectrum who are just overtly racist. Yeah. You know, they're putting on white hoods, they're tying the rope for the lynchers noose, they're using racial epithets and, and they're not even trying to hide it, right? They think it's a positive good, basically explicit overt. All the way on the other end are the people who are anti-racist, who are actively fighting against racism. But then there's this big mushy middle of people the people who would say, I don't have a racist bone in my body right. while signing up their kid for the private school that started to perpetuate segregation when the government finally decided to enforce integration in public schools. Uh, this is the group of people who say, you know, some of my best friends are black. <laughs> some of my best friends are people of color. Um, but stand by in a very contemporary controversy right now to, to ban things like critical race theory or the 1619 project, which are just catch-all phrases for any kind of teaching around race and white supremacy that makes America look bad or um, implicates white people in ways they don't like to hear. Um, so it, 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 it is not that, I, talk, I, I open the book from The Color of Compromise, I open it with uh, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, and um, a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. talks about how, you know, everyone, all of the white citizens in 
uh, Birmingham were implicated in that. And, and he wasn't saying everybody physically right. laid the sticks of dynamite and lit the match. They were saying, he was saying by their inaction, by their apathy, by their ignorance, they were culpable. And so that's what I try to get at in the book is this idea that you don't have to be the one calling the names. You don't have to be the one uh, writing the policies. In a, in, a, in a white supremacist society, the momentum is such that all you have to do is go along with the status quo and you perpetuate the problem. Yeah, man. Can you give like one or two um, I maybe call them under the radar examples of things that um, like, I remember reading a number of things in the book that I just like immediately, like I put the book down, cried a little bit and then Googled it, you know, because mm. I'm like, I've never heard of this thing before. Like, yeah. how did this happen? How did, how did this major catastrophe happen? And then like, nobody ever told me, you know? Yeah. Um, so can you like share just a few of those or one or two even that come to mind? In the 1690s, uh, Baptists actually passed a resolution saying you couldn't be a church member in good standing and be a slaveholder. Hmm. And it was it was a powerful statement early in uh, it was before this the United States as a political entity came to be. Right. So had that remained in place, it could have been. A, a powerful factor in addressing racism and white supremacy uh, centuries ago. But of course, you'll hear in, in, in my phrasing that it didn't last. What happened was this resolution went back to the local congregations, uh, which had, you know, wealthy people in their elders and leaders who did own uh, uh, an enslaved people. And, and they pushed back at the congregational level so vehemently that the the general convention decided to withdraw that resolution and what's more the reasoning behind it is something that haunts us to this day the reasoning behind it was that slavery is a civil issue not a spiritual issue yeah how much i mean we hear that constantly right exactly so the church should stay out of it right race is a political issue it's a social issue it's not a quote-unquote gospel issue so Christians shouldn't talk about it, or if they do in the very vaguest terms, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one example from a long time ago. Another example that I just think is just outright appalling, we still don't have a federal anti-lynching law. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, I mean, you can read any story of the nearly 5,000 recorded lynchings we know about and you would walk away, I, I would hope, thinking, well, of course we need a law against this. It's a travesty. We don't have one right now. And yet, even with the latest effort um, with then-Senator Kamala Harris and, and Cory Booker, two Black senators, to, to, to push for an anti-lynching law, it still hasn't passed yet. Mm. And what's worse, that's a century from you know, the height of lynching, in the height of lynching, uh, there's been incredible pushback against, you know, just something basic uh, right. of saying we shouldn't be killing people in extrajudicial murders right. without due process of law based on race and specious claims of criminality. Yeah. Um, and the question is, you know, what are, what are the rest of us doing about it, right? Like it's easy to point to 
the the people most directly involved but but we have some agency here yes and especially as the church we have all the resources and every reason to get involved in a decisive way to fight racism yes no doubt man um how much of the complicity over the years um do you think is tied up in money and I mean, you talked about, right, the, the, the Baptist folks that came back and they had the, the wealthy slave owners um, that they knew they would lose and uh, they knew that they would pay some serious financial costs if they did that. Um, I, I, I'm not talking about the, the hood wearing folks, right? I'm talking about the, the moderate in there. Um, how much of their decision to remain complicit do you feel like comes down to economic stuff? I mean, we're still getting yanked around by the one percent yeah the wealthiest people crafting a society to keep their wealth and grow their wealth Mm -hmm. is still so much of the story in the united states and even globally right and 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 racism white supremacy and the institutions that support them such as race-based chattel slavery are all implicated yeah. And so, um, you know, when you're in trouble, your, 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 your parent will call you by your first, middle and last name to, to let you know they mean business. Yeah. Uh, when I talk about slavery, I call it by its first, middle and last name because it's serious business. Yeah. It's not just slavery. It's race-based chattel slavery. Right. And so I think we understand a bit the race-based part. What we focus less on is the chattel part and chattel means property. And, and so the question is, so many questions, right? Like, 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 number one, how do you get a society that is stratified along racial lines? It didn't have to be this way. So I talk about in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, uh, which was a group of white Anglican men, all churchgoers, right? They had the front pews in their, their Anglican church um, in the colonies. They passed a law that said, uh, baptism would not emancipate an enslaved Native American uh, Af- person of African descent or mixed race descent, right? And and they did that in response to concerns from wealthy slaveholders that if you preach the gospel to our enslaved people, they're going to get these wacky ideas about equality and yeah. freedom and liberation. So to assuage the wealthy planter class, they passed this law about baptism along racial lines for economic reasons, right? And then you have to ask yourself, well, why was um, race-based chattel slavery so resilient that it took a civil war? Yeah. What is to this day, the United States bloodiest war we've ever fought to finally abolish slavery? It's because money was involved. Yeah. It's because it messed with people's bottom lines. You know, there was a, 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 a county in Mississippi that had the highest um, number of millionaires per capita in the entire country. And we know Mississippi now is one of the poorest states. Right. The only reason that area had so many millionaires was because of cotton and yeah. enslaving people, right? And then that's the issue of chattel slavery. It treats people as property. It, it just blows my mind. Slaveholders would actually bequeath enslave people to their children as an inheritance yeah, yeah. the same the same way you would pass down like a vase or something yeah. 
they pass down people. Yeah, man. Right. And then, and then on top of that, placed a monetary value. Uh, there's a book by Walter Johnson called uh, Soul by Soul. Mm -hmm. and, and, and his innovation as a historian was to just look at the ledgers of the slave market in New Orleans, which was the biggest uh, for a long time, and, and, and use that as sort of his historical record. And you can see, you know, it, they'll never use names. It's just like, you know, black female, 14 years old, and then a dollar amount. Mm. That's how I would have been treated. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then you keep, you, you just keep going, right? Where the fact that enslaved people were not paid. Yeah. It was a capitalist system, right? Yeah. You wanted to maximize profit and minimize loss. And the biggest outflow of money is wages, salaries, and benefits to your employees. So if you want to cut costs, you cut wages, salaries, and benefits. That's why people are still fighting for a basic living wage right now, because it's a way for the, the owners of the company to make more money by paying less, right? But, but, but you know, sort of taken to its, its horrific conclusion, you get um, race-based chattel slavery, where you don't just reduce wages, salaries, and but you don't pay them at all. And that happened for two centuries. And guess what? We never got paid. Yeah even after emancipation. So all I'm saying is we cannot detach this issue of racism, the, these issues of white supremacy from issues of money, or as the Bible would call it, greed. Yes. Yeah. Avarice. Yeah. The Bible talks a lot about that. Yeah, man, it really does. Yeah, Jesus, um, I think this is right. This is a, from seminary, but I believe that the only thing Jesus talked about, he talked about the kingdom of God number one, but number two was money and greed. And I mean, I mean, he just talked about it constantly, right? So can I, I jump to the second book, How to Fight Racism? Because yep. I feel like, you know, this is abstract unless we think about our practice, right? Yep. Like, so where we put our money is vitally important. Um, many people have said a, a budget is a moral document mm -hmm. yeah so what would it look like for for you and your family or your organization or your church to sit down and look at the budget and say how can we intentionally support black and people of color in their businesses or their work yeah you know it's things like looking at uh the the pay gap mm which still exists between white people and people of color. There's also a gender pay gap, of course. Um, it's, it's like, you know, many churches uh, have done the very simple step of if they have events, especially now that we're opening up um, uh, through these vaccines and whatnot, if you're having events, using caterers and services by people of color, hmm. even regular contractual work, um, yeah. You know, there's there's ways you can support black owned and minor, uh, minority owned businesses. Um, of course, like never even underestimating the power of writing a check. Yeah. I know it seems so simple and not enough, but if you're a nonprofit, <laughs> yeah, man. like it makes a big old difference. And 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 the thing I'm trying to to help us realize is that um, we shouldn't simply be reactive with our money. We should be proactive. Yeah. And so that means sitting down and plotting out, strategizing how we can 
uh, better use our own financial resources and that of our networks yes. uh, to support uh, people who have literally been robbed. Uh, we're, we're, as we record this, we're coming up on the uh, 100 year anniversary of the, the Tulsa massacre. And there's this, it, 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 most of the devastation took place in a part of Tulsa called Black Wall Street, where black people, even when we accumulated wealth, actually made us targets right. for racial violence because there was this resentment that, that, that even the, the 99%, even the people who didn't have money, if you were white, it was something you could always aspire to. Right. You could aspire to climbing the social ladder, to achieving the American dream, to gaining wealth on the backs of black people yep. so even mobilize people who weren't wealthy so that's all i'm saying <laughs> not so good anymore um i uh uh read cast this last year um isabel wilkerson's great book and one of the she talks a lot about that she talks about how um the kind of one percent uh they mobilize the 99 percent that you're talking about the 99 percent of white folks and say number one you have the hope to get here someday um, you're, you're gonna, you know, you just do the right things, do what we kind of tell you to do and you can maybe get here. But the other thing is that they kind of convince the 99% of white folks that even if you don't ever get here, at least you're superior to your neighbors of color, right? right. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how that's another whole story. Yeah, man. It's, it is, man, it is. Okay, so you, you brought up how to fight racism. So um, you told me earlier, you wrote this specifically, you wrote the order specifically. So this first and then this, um, so that you could kind of build the awareness and um, like we talked about telling the truth and all of that stuff. Um, so th this is just incredibly practical. And I also love that you made the decision um, that the subtitle is Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And you say toward the beginning, I don't remember the exact quote, but about how you chose to write this from a, through a Christian lens. Um, and that it, you hope that it, you know, helps everyone, and it certainly does. Um, but I do love how you are an unapologetic Christian and uh, even churchman, you know, and I think that's pretty awesome. Um, I wish we had even more time, man, because I could go on about this, right? Like, there's a sense in which it hurt book sales to put it, put something about Christianity on the cover, right? Because um, people who want to fight racism aren't all necessarily Christian. I totally get that. Um, but I wanted truth in advertising. I don't want people to sort of pick <laughs> up the book and feel like it was a bait and switch or something. Um, but but beyond that, uh, I, I had to write it from a Christian perspective because, you know, that's part of who I am. But also because, man, when, I, when I'm talking to folks who are not coming from some sort of... Um, larger, I would say, transcendent moral framework, and I'm not even talking specifically of Christianity, though I think there's a ton of resources there for it. Like when you peel back the layers and you talk about why racial justice is important or why we should treat people a certain way, there's a lot of sort of fumbling and talking around, right? It's, it's really hard for people to articulate what is, what is like the, the, the moral and ethical basis that we should be fighting racism, right? Like we know it's, you know, for, for a certain segment of the culture, it's, it's in vogue and the right thing to do. We know sort of instinctually or, or at least, you know, sort of subconsciously that this is better than the alternative of racism and white supremacy. But to me, Christianity in doctrines like the image of God, in 
the simple but profound principle of loving your neighbor gives us the impetus and the moral and the ethical framework to pursue this. Yes. So I do hope people from any background, and, and y'all can please feel free to share it with people who aren't Christian because it's not proselytizing at all. It's just saying, here's a, here's a sort of framework, a moral framework for understanding why we're engaged in this struggle. Yeah, man, I, I, I could not agree more. And you, you even look at the, um, the great commandment story, right? So that they asked Jesus, what's the most important thing? And he says, you know, love God. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then they say, but who's my neighbor, right? And Jesus tells a story about racial disparity and about people who hate someone because of their ethnicity, because of, you know, how different they are or where they were born or whatever, right? About, and he makes the Samaritan the, uh, the hero in the story. And so even that has racial ethnic underpinnings, right? And then Paul writes about it extensively, you know, kind of culminating with Galatians 3.28, there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Greek, um, and, you know, we are all one in Christ. There's no slave or free, we're all one in Christ. And yeah, man, I, I couldn't calling, agree more. And calling the great mystery of the gospel, yes. hidden through the ages, that the gospel goes forth to Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Which, yeah, which by the way, I mean, I'm sure you've touched on this before. Um, unless you are sort of ethnically and religiously Jewish, you're a Gentile. Right. <laughs> so, so in the United States, we have this sort of framework that if 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 you're white, you're the you're the Jew in right. in in that uh, formulation, and people of color are <laughs> the Gentile, as if the gospel belonged to people of European descent. And the great mystery is that God's gonna open it up yeah. to, to all races and ethnicities. The reality is God chose a covenant people known as the Jewish people. And the great beautiful grace and mystery is that God intended, never intended this just to be for one racial or ethnic group, but intended it for all. Yeah. So, so I just say that because you know, we tend to, in this context, um, place white people at that, the center of the covenant. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and that is no, not we, what the Bible talks about at all. At all. Man. And one of my favorite stories from the early church, too, is Acts 6, right, where you have mm -hmm. um, this uh, group of ethnic minorities who are being shut out of the um, food distribution stuff, right? And um, the disciples, the apostles come together, and they actually... Um, place people from that ethnic group in charge of the food distribution, right? Imagine that. I mean, it's incredible, right? So not, not only listening to stories of um, ethnic minorities being mistreated, believing them, but then actually um, doing something very real about it. And, and that's, I mean, obviously how to fight racism, it's about doing something about it. Um, so you, you break it into this thing you call the arc of racial justice, ARC of racial justice, which I love. Um, awareness, relationships, commitment. So could you just give us the quick, you know, what are what is awareness, what is relationships, what is commitment? And then we're gonna give one of these away in the Zoom after this. And everybody who doesn't get one, hopefully they'll be like, I got I gotta have all this. Gotta so. get one, yeah, that's great. Um, uh, first of all, if you ever write something or produce something, you, you gotta be an ambassador for it. I've just had to realize that fact, like, you know, especially if you're black or another person of color, uh, they, they, they may not promote your work like, <laughs> like, like they need to. So, A, I'm very 
grateful that, that you're highlighting these books. And B, I'm going to say, I think the value in how to fight racism isn't so much in the specific action steps, although this is a book that prioritizes the practical. I think the value is in that framework, hmm. the arc of racial justice, yeah. because you can use this in so many ways. It has so many applications. So number one, awareness. It's, it's all the knowledge and the information and data that you need. By the way, I'm talking to Black people and other people of color. It's not just enough to be Black. Right. right? We do have experiential knowledge, which is important. But there's a lot of study research. There are entire disciplines like, like, like African-American studies devoted to the, uh, 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 the knowledge of understanding race, right? So, so we do have to study this stuff, even if you're Black or brown-skinned person, right? Um, but you got to know what you're talking about. And, and that's the watching the documentaries. It's, it's listening to the, to the mixtape. It's, it's um, reading the books, right? That's great. But that's not all. I talk about relationships, which can seem to some real social justice oriented folks as almost regressive, right? Because we've all heard the refrain of, well, you know, if, if, if you're just nice to other people, um, if you treat other people fairly, if you're colorblind, whatever it might be, if you have good relationships with people who are different, then you're doing your part. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fundamental fact that racism and white supremacy is about image bearers, yeah. that we cannot do an end around people, which is who and what God prioritizes in order to get to social justice, right? So, so, so that does mean intentionally cultivating relationships with people who are different. It does mean checking ourselves and making sure we're not being contemptuous, even of people who hold abhorrent ideas. This is not some you know, weak-spined, uh, wishy-washy, I'm gonna treat, you know, have a moral equivalency of, of ideas or beliefs. It's saying that, that even when other people dehumanize me, I'm not going to dehumanize them. And that's loving your neighbor as you love yourself, right? right? Nobody said it was easy. And it may not even be popular. Because yeah. if you talk to some groups and some individuals who are about social justice, it's like, forget people. Right. We just need to change the law, the policy, the whatever. And I'm like, yeah, we need to do that too. But we can't forget our humanity, ours or someone else's, right? So that's the relationship part. And then the commitment part is the laws and policies, because all too often Christians, especially white Christians, are like, oh, you don't need to, you know, affect these things, right? Like, like, like it's all about the interpersonal and 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 the individual attitudes. But but they're not talking about the fact that 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 black women die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women. They're not talking about the fact that our nation has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. They're not talking about the fact that they're, instead of talking about abolishing the death penalty, they're talking about bringing back firing squads in the death penalty. That's a real and true fact oh, yeah. that they want to kill people by firing squad uh, uh, instead of chemicals or whatever it might be, right? Like, so laws need to be changed. But what I'm saying is this has so many applications. You want your organization, your congregation, your institution to be anti-racist, develop a, 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 
anti-racist strategic plan and use the ARC as a framework? How are we building our awareness of these issues? How are we intentionally building relationships? How are we committing to policy and institutional change and practices, right? In your own life, that's chapter 10 of the book, you know, how, how to commit your own life, that's gonna include things about your personal, your family budget, right? Like on the commitment aspect, it's gonna include things like, like going to, instead of joining the, the, the church sports league, join the, the city or the community sports league. So you can actually build relationships with people who are different from you. It's gonna include auditing your bookshelf, which you've got a great one behind you, but making sure you got people of color and black and brown folks and women who are informing you and shaping your ideas, right? So, so it becomes a framework, not just for isolated and individual actions, but for an entire approach to racial justice. Man, that's so good. Um, well, man, I, I so appreciate the time. Um, I wanna be uh, respectful of you. I know you got a million, we were just talking before we started recording about the million things you got going on in dissertation and all that stuff. Um, but I've already said, I would really highly encourage if you didn't get a free one um, when we did the giveaway to, to get both of these, um, read them in the order we talked about because um, they are both phenomenal. And then um, I've also got this, which is 400 Souls um, that uh, Ibram Kendi and uh, Keisha Blaine put together. And Jamar is a contributor to this. Yeah, I got uh, a new one too. Do what? This one is coming oh, yeah, out. Man. Yeah, this summer. And uh, Bill Pinnell is a is a black evangelical professor emeritus of preaching at Fuller Seminary. Uh, he wrote the books My Friend the Enemy, which was one of the first sort of insider perspectives from a black person about white evangelicals and their racism. And then um, um, the the book The Coming Race Wars is is his reflection after uh, the Rodney King beating and the subsequent acquittal. So I got to write a new um, sort of extended forward here where I gave you some of the historical background of that event, which you know took place now about 30 years ago and um, you know, frame some of Bill Pinnell's contributions. So that's the uh, it's all yeah. out there. Man, I'm excited. That, that's coming out soon this summer? Yes, it'll be out by the time you folks listen to this. Oh man, I didn't even get that too. Um, man, well, I, I wanna end, I'm gonna ask you to pray in just a second, but I wanna end with this quote from um, the end of how to fight racism, because I think it's important. Um, and I, I know you put it there for a reason. So you say, we cannot give up. We are people of hope and hope is not blind optimism. It is a realistic assessment of current conditions with the faith that tomorrow can be different. We are people who believe that a brutal unjustified murder resulted in a resurrection. We believe that a poor carpenter from Nazareth conquered death and is forming a people who will join in this triumph. Each day that we live is the opportunity to be witnesses to the resurrection life and the coming of the kingdom of God. And so I just want to encourage everyone who's listening to this to, to hold on to that hope, to be empowered by the spirit, um, to fight racism, to fight against everything that hurts God's image bearers. Um, and Jamar has given us a great framework to be able to do that. So, man, thank you again for being on. Um, anything else you want to say? And then I'd love for you to just pray over this. Now is the time, folks. Today's the day. I believe we are living in the civil rights movement of our day. Yeah. And it's about the legacy you want to leave. Mm. What do you want to be true? Should the Lord tarry 20, 30, 40 years from now? 
when your children or grandchildren or when history books are being written and, and, and they say, what did you do in this opportune moment? What do you want to be true? And so I encourage you to respond as Martin Luther King Jr. said to the fierce urgency of now. Mm. We have every reason to act. Yes. And it's long past time that we did so as the church. And instead of compromising with racism, courageously confront it. Yes. Man, I'm with you. Thank you for that, bro. Thank you. All right, man. Would you pray for us and we'll be out of here? God in heaven, we pray those words that your son taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you tell us in Matthew 5 that, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God, we are among those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for equity, for an end to racism and white supremacy. We're starving, God, and we are parched. We're looking for an oasis while we're here right now, oh Lord. We pray for your divine satisfaction. We pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for your will to be done. And we pray that we can be women and men of action. We pray, God, that we can be people of faith who, who as you told Joshua in the first chapter, that we can be strong and courageous, God. And we pray that we wouldn't try to do it in our own power. Yes. We ask, oh Lord, that you would help us to have the humility to rely on the community of saints and believers that you've surrounded us with. And at the most fundamental level, Lord, we pray that we would rely on you in the power of your Holy Spirit yes, to give us the strength and courage to be who you have called us to be and to courageously stand in our time and in this moment against racism, white supremacy, injustice, and any form of oppression. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. It was an honor having you on. Honor to be here. God bless.